Hi, welcome to the Behind the Balance Sheet podcast, where we meet leading investors and commentators and educate ourselves about the world of investing and the world. Our mission is to remove some of the mystique around investing and improve our understanding of what makes a successful investment or indeed an unsuccessful one. Our goal is to inform, educate and entertain. We hope you enjoy this and every episode. Behind the balance sheet and affiliates and podcast guests may own shares or have an economic interest in securities discussed in this podcast, which is aired for your education and entertainment only. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment advice or relied upon for investment decisions. Always do your own research. Are traditional expert calls in the investment world becoming obsolete? According to Stream, they are, and you can access primary research easily and efficiently through their platform. With Stream, you'll have the right insights at your fingertips to make the best investment decisions. They offer a vast library of over 26,000 expert transcripts powered by AI search technology. Plus, they provide competitive rates on expert call services, and you can even have an experienced buy-side analyst conduct the calls for you. But that's not all. Stream also provides the ability to engage with experts one-on-one and get your calls transcribed free of charge, all for 40% less than you would pay for 20 calls in a traditional expert network model. So if you're looking to optimize your research process and increase ROI and investment research spend, Stream has the solution for you. This podcast is intended to educate and entertain, but we also have a more serious purpose. We support the Financial Times Financial Literacy Charity. Check it out on ft.com forward slash flick. It's the most disadvantaged in society who get taken in by financial scams, by payday loans, and similar artful devices designed to part people from their money. We can change this. It's a straightforward task of education. This is a great cause, and I urge you, please, to support it. Last time, we ran part one of my discussion with William Green, the author of the best-selling book, Richer, Wiser, Happier. And this time, we're running the second part. Green's book was a bestseller for good reason, and this conversation clearly illustrates why he's been so successful. Last time, we heard Green explain why the great investors are such thoughtful, practical philosophers. It's because they're students of life. Green quotes Munger, who says, he watches what works and what doesn't work, and learns from it. In this part of our conversation, you'll learn what Charlie Munger said about Green's book. Spoiler, he liked it. A lot. How to be a good interviewer. This is instruction from one of the best practitioners of that art. And why William thinks that no matter the endeavor, being just a little bit weird helps in life. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. In the book, you talk about loners and you talk about how many of these great investors got divorced. Yeah. And I mean, there was the odd one. Was it Tom Gaynor who's married his childhood sweetheart? Yeah, yeah he's been dating they, since, he was, since they were 15. Oh, cracky. But do, do you think that um, the job does pull people's lives apart. And it's just the pressure. I'm friends with Monish Parabrai, who's a remarkable person I write about at length in the book. And I traveled in India with him for the, for the book um, for several days. And, and Monish, who, who got divorced and uh, now has a great relationship with a lovely, uh, lovely person, um, he's close to Charlie Munger. And there was a moment where he went to Charlie's house and he said, Charlie, how do you like William's book? And Charlie's like, oh, it's fantastic. And, and he said, do you have any um, 
Uh, I don't know if that's exactly the word, but you know, it was a very, he videoed him saying this and he was incredibly flattering about it. And um, uh, uh, sorry if this self, sounds self-congratulatory. And Moni said to him, was there anything, any insights that particularly struck you? And he said, Munger said something like, yeah, how many of us got divorced? And he said, and it makes sense because it's such an all-consuming game that we neglected our partners. And I think that's partly what it is, that to be really good at anything, you have to be, a, I mean, not just really good, but astonishingly good. I think you have to be a little bit maniacal. I also think you probably have to be a little bit weird. And so there's a degree of obsessiveness and probably a lack of emotion that a lot of the great investors have that doesn't make for the greatest spouse material. The, the people that you've interviewed, they're, I mean, they're all distinguished by the fact that they're incredibly successful, but they tend to be a bit loners. They're, there aren't in that group, I mean, I'm sure there are some team players, but they don't seem to be generally team players. And I was also struck, I mean, James Anderson, the former senior partner of Bailey Gifford, who invested in Tesla at the start and got out or to cut his position very significantly, very near the top. He's not in your list of interviewees. Uh, I mean, have you consciously filtered uh, people who are part of larger organizations? Was there some method to the, your selection process? <laughs> very little method. Um, what's, no, I was looking, I, I interviewed a lot of people, right? I mean, I interviewed more than 40 people in depth for this book. And then I had to decide who am I going to go big on? And so the people I went big on tended to be people who I thought were admirable and interesting and good role models and good thinkers. And so they weren't just the richest people. They were people who you wanted to learn from. So that was one, that was one filter. Another was that I think they, they had to have been sustainably successful. I, you couldn't just have people who were a flash in the pan. But they also had to illustrate principles that were interesting. So even if they blew up or underperformed for years, at least you were teaching things, sharing ideas that would be enduringly valuable. So that was one filter. But then there was a, there's a subconscious thing that's obviously going on. And I realized this at a certain point. You know, the book took me about five years to write. Um, it was an incredibly obsessive, totally all-consuming pursuit. I mean, I didn't take a vacation in, in five years. And I looked back at a certain point and I realized, wait a second, everyone I've written about to some degree is a loner. There's somebody who's gone their own direction and cracked this code. They figured out the code of the markets in some way that's so ingenious and thoughtful and independent spirited. And then they've structured their lives in a way that's true to who they are by having outwitted the crowd in some way and thought better than everyone else. And then I started to think, oh shit, that's what I'm obsessed with. That's because I'm a writer who's an outsider, who's trying to figure out how to live, who's trying to figure out how to crack the code of how to live in a way that's true to myself, to crack the code of how to live, how to operate, how to build a truly successful life in, in the deepest sense of the word, not just financially, but in terms of being true to yourself. And so I think there was something that I hadn't realized that was going on, that I was very drawn to these independent, spirited, free-thinking problem solvers who weren't part of the crowd, 
who were trying to outwit the crowd. And so there's some aspect of me scouring the world looking for people who are uh, fellow travelers in trying to figure out how to think, how to live, how to do it themselves. And I just, I think for, uh, there's, a, there's a lovely image from the novelist Henry James where he talks about how the writer always has their nose pressed up against the glass, like they're outside, their nose pressed up against the glass watching and observing. They're not, they're not quite part of the group. They're outside the group. And I think uh, on the whole, the greatest investors have that same slightly dispassionate, slightly weird detachment from the crowd. And, and I interviewed Chris Davis about this, the guy I mentioned before, who, who thought of going into seminary. And Chris was talking to me about his father, who was a legendary investor, a great investor called Shelby Davis. And Chris was saying to me, look, all of these guys tend to have very low emotional intelligence, low EQ. And he said, it kind of makes sense because to beat the market, you have to diverge from the market, right? So you have to be different. You've got to be a little odd. And he said, for some of these guys, it's really helpful if they have low EQ because they actually are too obtuse emotionally to know what the crowd is thinking and how the crowd feels. And so they can think for themselves because they're not subject to the same emotions. And when I went to interview Charlie Munger, I said to him, when, when the market was crashing in late 2008 and early 2009 and, and banks were going bankrupt and you bought Wells Fargo, at what he described as the bottom tick for Wells Fargo in, in I think, March 2009. And he said it was a once in 40-year opportunity. And I said to him, did you feel any fear or any emotion? He said, no. And I said, so you're not fighting those emotions because you don't have them? And he's like, right. And he said, and Warren is wired exactly the same way. That's, that's really interesting to me as an insight into the wiring the emotional wiring and behavior of extreme performers, that they're these, they're these maverick, independent-spirited people cracking the code and outwitting the crowd by thinking better and being less emotional while everyone else is fearful or less, um, or just not getting carried away by crowd euphoria. And so I think for me as an independent-spirited guy, I mean, I'm, I'm a, um, you know, look, I'm, I'm a Jew who went to Eaton. Um, there were maybe 10 of us. Um, and while, you know, you would be surrounded by all of these posh people with great histories, you know, my, my family had fled from Russia and Ukraine and Poland, and we'd been living in shtetls. And so here I was at the poshest school, but I didn't feel posh. I was sort of an outsider. And then I have a birthmark on my face, right? So I didn't look the same as everyone else. And then I was a writer. Um, and so I just, I, maybe I just naturally felt like I'm a little different. And my mind is different. I mean, you know, I mean, look, I'm writing about investing, but I'm drawing on Tibetan Buddhism and Kabbalah and the study of the science of habits and meditation. And I mean, look, I, I look in my desk here. I've got a book on quality by Robert Persig, who wrote Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And then I've got a 2,000-year-old book in Aramaic on my desk. I'm a pretty weird dude. And so... And those are the things that legitimate, and then I look further and it says integral life practice. And there's another book on integral theory. And I, I mean, those are weird interests that are all pretty disparate. And so I don't know, I think, you know, Bill Miller said to me once, he, he, he said uh, there was some guy he met very early in his career who was talking to all of these young 
money managers and analysts and said, look, all of you are studying the same thing. You're reading the same thing. You're reading the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times every day. You're reading the same analyst reports. How can you possibly think differently when you're reading all of the same things? And there was Bill Miller, who, when I first interviewed him, I said to him, who's your greatest influence as an investor? And it became pretty clear that it was Ludwig Wittgenstein and William James, two philosophers. That's a really interesting mind. That's a guy who was able to outwit the market because he thought differently. And so he was looking, say, at Wittgenstein's picture of a triangle, where Wittgenstein says, well, what is it? Describe it. It's all of these different things, depending on your perspective. And Bill was saying, think about Amazon. This is back in 2001 that we were talking, 2000 and 2001 we were talking. And Amazon had crashed. It had gone from, I think, um, 90 to maybe a low of five or six. And he'd bought 15% of the company as it was crashing. And he said to me, think about how you describe Amazon in the same way as you think about how you describe that triangle. And he said, for some people, they look at Amazon and it's a money-losing bookseller um, that will never be profitable, that's doomed to go bankrupt, that's run by this young, uppity billionaire and it's a stock that just burned them all. It's the quintessence, the perfect embodiment of the irrational exuberance of the dot-com bubble in 98, 99, 2000. And they can't stand it. And he said, look at this guy at Barron's who week in, week out, kicks the crap out of Amazon. He can't get enough out of writing about how bad this thing is. And he's like, I look at it. And he said, it reminds me of Fannie Mae when I talk to Peter Lynch about Fannie Mae when I first went to get advice from Peter Lynch all those years ago at the start of my career. And Peter Lynch said to me, why don't you own Fannie Mae? He's like, you've got a great portfolio. Why don't you own Fannie Mae? And Bill said, well, I don't understand it. I don't understand why you own it. And Peter Lynch said, well, go figure it out. And not long afterwards, Bill tells Peter Lynch, I figured it out. And he figures out that they had some cost advantage that was concealed at the time and, and that eventually would become apparent. And Bill said, when I looked at Amazon, I could see the same thing. I could see that they had a cost advantage that was concealed by the fact that they were losing money. And so I could see that eventually the fact that they didn't have physical stores, that they had warehouses and the like, they would do better than uh, because they would have this cost advantage. And so the fact that he was able to take Wittgenstein and William James, who were obsessed with misperception and how to perceive clearly reality as it is rather than through your own biases, that gave him a competitive advantage. So I think in some way, yes, you need all of these financial literacy skills. Like, you know, as Charlie Munger would say, you don't want to be the one-legged guy in, a, in an ass-kicking contest, not knowing how to read balance sheets and the like. But you also need to be reading other things and thinking about other perspectives to have a competitive advantage. Because otherwise, you're just reading the same nonsense that everyone else is reading. Well, it, it will amuse you, but one of my hypotheses is that people don't read the 10Ks and the mm. balance sheet, and that's why um, people are interested in doing my courses, because they, mm. they don't exactly been proven. It's, uh, understanding the balance sheet will give you, will give you an advantage. You know, it's a slightly curious thing. Were you, um, were you surprised at how well the book has done? Do you, were you expecting it to be this successful? Um. I put heart and soul into the book. So at a certain point, I just decided I'm playing for keeps here. I just, the stakes kept going up, partly because it was during COVID and you started to think more about your own mortality. And I started to realize as I got deeper and deeper into it, 
I just started to think, well, I have something here that's totally and utterly unique and precious in that I've spent 25 years interviewing these people like Bogle and Peter Lynch and Sir John Templeton. And then I have this incredible access to these extraordinary people now like Ed Thorpe or Howard Marks or uh, you know, I mean, I interviewed every, every, not everyone, but an enormous number of really great people. And in some cases, I'd spent days with them. And so I just thought this is a real treasure trove that would be very hard to recreate. And so rather than doing this in a sort of self-congratulatory way of thinking, this is going to be a bestseller and I'm going to be fantastic and everyone's going to love me. I just thought I actually have a chance to create something that's, um, <laughs> to use a phrase that a friend of mine use, uses often, true, beautiful, and good. And I just thought, I better not squander this because I may never have this opportunity again in the rest of my life. And I was thinking, again, you know, I mean, some people will, I'm just trying to be honest because some people will look at the book and be like, well, it sucks really after all that effort. That's all you could do. But I, I remember that, you know, Ford Maddox Ford, who I talked about earlier, wrote something like 85 books, if I remember. He was incredibly prolific. And people underestimated him because he just was pumping stuff out. And he said he sat down at the age of 40 to show people what he could do. And he sat down and wrote The Good Soldier, which is one of the greatest novels of the 20th century. It's basically a perfect novel. It's just utterly perfect. Uh, I mean, Graham Greene said at one point that it was the greatest French novel in the English language because it sounds like Flaubert. It's like it feels like you're reading Madame Bovary. It's like every word is perfect. And I slightly had that feeling, again, not to want to um, be self-aggrandizing because, you know, I don't have the talent of... Uh, <laughs> Of Ford Ford or Flaubert, but I sat down at the age of you know what was it forty seven to fifty two or whatever, and I just thought I want to leave one thing that's really valuable because I'd spent a lot of time editing great writers, right? Like I I edited the Asian edition of Time Magazine and then the European edition of Time Magazine, and so I would edit people like Jan Morris or um William Dalrymple or Aravinda Diga who I you know won the Booker Prize with the White Tiger and I convinced Aravind to leave Columbia and come work as an editor when I was an editor to come work as a writer for me in New York and then when I moved to Asia to work at Time I convinced him to leave and move to India um and so I'd edited all of these fantastic writers but you're concealed you're you're using this skill that you've developed over many years but you're really just the um, the nursemaid, you know, the the delivery person in the in the delivery room, which is a very honourable and fulfilling and exciting and beautiful thing to be. But I think there was some sense in which I wasn't fulfilling my potential. And so when I had the opportunity to write my own thing and real latitude to do it, I just thought I'm going to put heart and soul into this. And if there's any, I'm sorry to be sort of so self-referential here, but I think if there's any takeaway from this that's vaguely helpful to people, it relates to this idea of quality that Persig writes about in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And this had a huge influence on Nick Sleep, who I write about in the book, who had this incredible record running the Nomad Fund with Case Sicaria, Zach is called. And um, this idea of quality, of committing to quality in a kind of obsessive, uncompromising way. There's something very, very powerful about that. And, and you know, Persig says there's an ugly way to do things and a beautiful way to do things, whether you're sharpening a knife or mending a dress or fixing a chair. And so Nick and Zach decided that when they were running the Nomad Fund, we're just going to do this in the highest quality way. And that influenced their fee structure, the way they treated each other, the way they treated their clients, the information they favored. They were looking at long-term information 
that wasn't perishable, that didn't have a short shelf life, as they put it. And so they would get all of the Wall Street research and they would just sort of tip it into the, into the bin. And they said, no, no, we're just focused on these long-term questions. Like, what's the ultimate destination for Amazon? What's the ultimate destination for Costco? And then let's, let's go back from saying, here's a beautiful destination in 10, 15, 20 years and say, well, what inputs are required for them to get to that destination? And are they treating their customers in that way? Are they treating their suppliers in that way? And so that's a very long-term approach. So, so it's very defined by this idea of quality. Is the company behaving in a high-quality way? Are they favoring the long-term over the short-term? And so I feel like in some way, when I decided kind of in this obstinate way that I was just going to do the best book I could possibly do, I was aligning myself with these maniacal obsessives. And I, I, think, I think when you're looking at your own life, you have to decide, well, so do I want to be one of the people who just pumps out mediocre crap because you've got to feed the beast? So I think of this with my own podcast where I'm like, do I, do I want to do a podcast every week? No, it's too much. Do I want to write a Substack newsletter and pump out stuff to build my brand? No, I, I don't care. That's not what I'm optimizing for. If I write one or two more books in the course of my life, but they're good, that would be pretty valuable to me. So I, I think of someone like Robert Caro, the great the great biographer of Linda Johnson, who spent the last 50 years writing about Linda Johnson, and he's just incredible. Um, I was listening to an interview the other day with Robert Gottlieb, who's his legendary editor, one of the greatest editors of all time. His daughter has just made a documentary about the relationship between Caro and Gottlieb, so her father and one of his most famous writers. And she said that um, she said to Caro, gosh, I'm so sorry that my my film took something like five years or seven years, I think, to make. And Kara said to her, oh, it takes seven years to create anything of enduring value. And I, I, there was a moment where I was in my kitchen, I just went, ha, uh, <laughs> you know, to myself. Well, listen, you've got 2,800 reviews on Amazon and a 4.8 star rating, which, I mean, I think is unbelievable. Ah, uh, thanks. I tell you the best, the, the best thing, if I'm going to toot my own horn, which as I say that, I'm like, don't do this, stop. Now, there was a moment where I had a Zoom call with Charlie Munger and a few other great investors. And, and Charlie said, uh, it's one of the best investing books ever written. And, um, and I sort of thought, I can relax now. I can just sort of say, no, this wasn't for a blurb. This was just privately. But it, I can't tell you, there was some part of me that just sort of breathed a sigh of relief. And I was like, oh, okay. So you've got this now 99-year-old guy who's probably the smartest guy in the investing world, you know, who's read everything, who reads about 300 books a year saying that. And I was just like, okay, so maybe I created something of, of enduring value. And so I'm saying it not, I, like there is a sort of appallingly self-congratulatory side to saying that, so I'm sorry. But actually there was a part of me that was like, oh, that's really beautiful. And it, it made me think, you know, Buffett always talks about how you should live by an inner scorecard and you shouldn't really care what other people think. And I've idealized that view of trying to live in a way that's true to who you are. But the, the truth is, I really care what other people think. And well, of course, you can't not, right? I mean, especially if you've produced a, a piece of uh, literary work. And to have Munger say that, I mean, well, that says, oh, I mean, uh, anybody listening to this podcast is, you know, they're on their app on Amazon buying it right now, I'm sure, if they haven't already got it. Actually, um, funnily enough, I had a, a call with one of my clients this morning who hadn't got your book, and they, they bought it on the call. 
If you enjoy this podcast, you're bound to enjoy our free newsletter on Substack. It's a weekly email on interesting investing topics. Visit BehindTheBalanceSheet.com and hit the sign up button. While you're there, you might want to check out our brilliant online investor training school. Hundreds of students have taken our flagship Analyst Academy course, which teaches you everything you need to become a serious equity investor. And if you're a professional investor, we run a forensic accounting course for institutional clients and soon a cohort-based course for serious amateurs. Email us at info at behindthebalancesheet.com. I just was going to ask you just before we, we finish off that, I mean, obviously you're a brilliant writer, but you must also be a great interviewer. What, what does it take to be a good interviewer? Deep curiosity, as you were mentioning before, but also I think some degree of deep empathy that I think is, is valuable. And I was thinking recently, I talked to my daughter, Madeline, a lot about this sort of thing. She's 21, very talented. And she's, she, like me, is a little bit of uh, an eccentric and doesn't approach the world in a kind of normal way. She's writing songs and writing a kid's book and, um, you know, drawing and painting, you know, so she's eccentric. And I, I think somehow at anything that you do to a high level, you're having to harness your own particular form of craziness, your own eccentricity. And so I think one of the things that I have that helps me as an, as an interviewer is I think I feel the emotion of the other person. So I, I was interviewing someone a few weeks ago, a famous investor, and there was a moment where I felt almost like overwhelmed by his sense of sadness. And in, so in some ways in life, that's a disadvantage, right? That I have very raw emotions and so I'm oversensitive and I'm, I'm oversensitive to um, criticism or fear of failure or fear of judgment or anxiety. You know, the, the, like my emotions are raw. But on the other hand, I, you know, I had, I had this wonderful English teacher at Eton called Rafe Townsend, who was the best teacher I ever had, who was, became my son's headmaster at Winchester. And he was very extraordinary. I was talking to him a few years ago in a taxi in New York. I was talking to him about a relative of mine who's eccentric and very gifted. And he said, it's the disfigurement of the gift. And I, I did a double take. And I'm like, what? He said, yeah, with every gift, there comes a disfigurement. And I think that's true that to be good at, to be very good at anything, it helps to be a little weird, to be taking advantage of your odd characteristics. And I think that's the case, whether you're a writer, an investor, an interviewer. And I, I tell you one thing, Steve, that I started to realize at a certain point, you know, I'm a, I'm a pained writer. It's not easy for me. It's very difficult for me to write. Uh, and I get kind Good. of, uh, Good. And, and there was a, um, there was a moment where I realized at a certain point that my obsessive going over and over and over words and sentences, I mean, to a degree that people would regard as kind of maniacal, um, is a form of self-soothing, that there's something actually where even though I find writing painful, you're in a world where everything is very unpredictable and you don't have control over the future and you don't have control over how other people are going to view you. Um, you know, we've seen through COVID, through the Ukraine war, through market meltdowns and the like, the future is unknowable. We live in a very uncertain world. And yet here, as a writer, I could control one little thing. And it was, how's this paragraph going to turn out? How's this? And so there are weird things going on in my book where literally, like, I would get a chapter down to 11,100 uh, or 11,111 words just because it gave me pleasure that it was all one. It was all one. 
that's a <laughs> there's a degree of kind of craziness there um that's underlying that obsessiveness to get things to a point where you're controlling the length of a long chapter to the word but i think i think there's something in this that should be heartening to our listeners that when you're a little bit eccentric that's where the beauty lies that's where your gift lies and also to know that with your gift there is the disfigurement there is the disfigurement of the gift like you know the greatest investors getting divorced more because it's a challenge for them to have an enduring relationship and so that's comforting to know that your greatest gift is also often your greatest challenge and vice versa but it's also uh, i mean it's it's part of the human condition and so i think it, it requires us to have a little bit of self-compassion about our failings and our weirdnesses and to recognize that they're also our gifts but also to know you know that you you need to take advantage of those things because they're probably way most talented and you also need a little compassion with the the odd bods around you you know when you look at your kids your relative your spouse the people you're working with they're all strange in their own way and they all they all have their own disfigurements and their own burdens to bear and this was one of the things i was trying to write about in the book was to give a sense that just just because you're a hugely rich hugely successful well-known investor doesn't mean you you're not in pain and you're not struggling in certain ways and i i just thought as i got up close to a lot of the greatest investors they have their problems too these guys they you know they have kids with um depression they have kids with bulimia anorexia they you know they have broken marriages they have public disappointment and failure and i and i think that's very heartening in some ways to know that we all have our burden to bear and that it, it is it is part of the human condition and and it means we we shouldn't fantasize that the money is somehow going to set us free that if you if you make all this money and you achieve all this success everyone's going to think oh, you're so fantastic it's like no it's it's like it's like in the same way you know i had a moment of of great joy and elation that Charlie Munger told me my book was great and then you're back to having your usual self doubt and self recrimination and you sit around thinking um i i think i said something yesterday there was one point my daughter was laughing at me i said god do I even have a right to live? I mean, look at me. This is such a schmuck. I done say I can't even remember what it was. And like this total self-contempt comes out. And it's like, yeah, so I you know, when I'm telling myself, "Oh no, I did a great job with this book and it's been successful and stuff." That's partly just to reassure myself that, you know, I deserve a place in the world. It's like we're all we're all struggling to get through and get by and improve and you know when i when i look at the greatest investors one of the most striking common denominators is just their perseverance they just stick at it you know they go through these periods where they fail where they underperform and they just keep plugging away keep trying to improve keep trying to learn keep coming back to to take more pain and to improve and that also is heartening so i'm looking at the greatest investors and i'm not I'm not saying in the way that I would have done in my early 20s. Here's how you get rich as quick as possible, you know. It's like no. Like here's how you build a sustainably successful life and that in, that requires you to recognize that we all fail, we all have periods of disappointment, we all have our struggles, we all have our blind spots, and yet there are ways that you can improve. There are ways of behaving that tilt the odds subtly in your favor. And I think when you study the greatest investors, you can pick up some pretty powerful clues. about how to tilt the odds in your favor. Yeah, and I think that comes over very clearly in the book. We normally ask guests if they if there's a book that they would like to recommend. And we do actually ask authors that. I mean obviously we'll link to your book in the show notes, but is there you're you like giving books. And I I just wondered if I mean is there any book that you would like 
people that they should read, perhaps something that they that they haven't thought of that will improve their investment performance or their life? The books I give most regularly are actually Kabbalistic books. They're, they're books that come from this long mystical tradition that goes back several thousand years. And they're very... So I'm... I'm increasingly obsessed both with Tibetan Buddhism and Kabbalah, but I also study things like Hinduism and Stoicism and the like. And I'm very interested in the similarities, the themes that go through all of these different paths. But I feel, so, so, so I spend a lot of time studying a particular Tibetan Buddhist, a guy called Sokni Rinpoche, which is spelled T-S-O-K-N-Y-I. And he has a new book that he wrote with Daniel Goleman, who's the guy who wrote the Emotional Intelligence book that's called Why We Meditate, but which is actually about more than that. And I have an interview with the two of them on my podcast, the Richer, Wiser, Happier podcast. And I kind of like the subversiveness of the fact that I have probably the only saffron-robed, enlightened meditation master ever to have appeared on an investment podcast. Because Sogni is pretty unbelievable. So, so I think Sogni is someone really worth studying. And, and he has a course online called Fully Being that I've been doing on off and on for a couple of years. And I, I, I think it's a very, very good course and his teachings are profound and important. And so I turned people on to that. And then I think one reason why I was so drawn to Sogni Rinpoche is that he comes from this great thousand year lineage where his father was a great Tibetan Buddhist master called Tuku Urjian Rinpoche. And it goes back a long time. And I think part of what struck me was that the lineage of Kabbalists I study also goes back thousands of years. And I think there's something about the way wisdom gets passed down through a lineage from father to son or from great master to student. It's very powerful and beautiful. And so I love these ancient wisdoms that have stood the test of time. I think that's powerful. When something has stood the test of time, you want to say, why? What can I get from this? And, and this gets us back to Templeton in a way that really a lot of this stuff, whether it's studying Kabbalah or Buddhism or Stoicism, or in Templeton's case, Christianity and many other faiths, it's really about getting control of your inner landscape. And this is what I really failed to understand about Templeton back then, is that you don't want your own mind to be just this wild sort of confusion where it's just sort of all over the place without you being aware of it, without you being aware of how your thoughts and emotions are yanking you around. And so I think part of becoming a, a wiser and happier individual, and probably a better investor as well, is to get more of a sense of how your own mind operates and how your emotions operate. And so I think studying these things like meditation, Tibetan Buddhism, and figuring out what's going on inside your mind is really powerful because also you have control over it to some degree, but you only have control of it when you're aware of what's going on. So, so I did sit and meditate this morning and I, I'm looking and I'm like, my mind is just all over the place. And I'm like, wow, this thing that you're dealing with at the moment, there's something that's not work-related that I'm dealing with. And I'm like, that's really unsettling you. And I'm like, huh, I didn't realize just how much that's unsettling you. And so just to have a little bit of distance from that is very powerful. And one of the things that Sokni Rinpoche does that you'll see if you, if you watch my interview with him and also if you read his book or do this Fully Being course, one of the things he does is something called handshake practice, where he looks at what's going on, at these emotions, negative emotions, difficult emotions, challenging thought patterns, and he handshakes them. He says, with this attitude of warmth and kindness, he greets them and he says, hi there, you know, oh, okay, I see what's going on. And there's something really 
extraordinarily wise about this approach that in, instead of judging them or applying an antidote and saying, I must change this, I feel angry in this moment or anxious in this moment or sad in this moment, he recognizes that it's there and he sees how it's expressing itself in the body and he abides with it, he sits with it. And gradually, because as the Buddhists teach, everything is impermanent, it changes. And so by just sitting with it in an aware way, the intensity behind it dissipates. And so for me, this has been an incredibly rich area of exploration. So if, say, you know, I, I look at how well my book's doing, and then I, I look and I'm like, Jesus Christ, look at Morgan Housel's book. It sold so many more copies than mine. And I'm like, that bastard, how come? He's not better than I am. Why is his book doing so? You know, and then, and then I'm like, I look at that and I'm like, oh, jealousy, sadness, sense of inadequacy, sense of, you know, and I can handshake that and I can smile at it and I can be like, okay, that's okay. I don't, that's, that's part of the human condition. And then it softens a little and I can laugh at it a little and then it passes and I'm like, good on, good on Morgan. And then it comes up again and I'm like, ah, bastard, you know, but at least, at least I'm aware of it. But you spent five years. I mean, he spent not even five months. Ha. Huh. No, he had written, he'd written articles for years about this stuff. And he's, he's very talented and he's very smart. And so he was sort of collating some of that stuff and bringing it together. And, you know, he's, he's a very, very good writer and he's a very clever guy. So I, I don't begrudge Morgan his success at all. I'm just, I'm just using it as an example of like, as you become a better user of the machine called Stephen Clapham, that requires you to look at yourself and be like, oh, that's what's going on. And so then you look at it and then you're like, oh, that's why I feel anxious at this moment. Or that's why I feel sad at this moment or something. And, and then once you're aware of it, just sitting with it, dissipates the intense energy behind it. And that's a, that's a very beautiful thing. And if you look, I'll give you one more recommendation. There's a, there's a book called Letting Go by David Hawkins, where he talks about this mechanism of letting go. And it's exactly the same as what Sokni Rinpoche is doing, that he's not judging or suppressing or repressing whatever comes up. He's looking at it and acknowledging it and then letting the energy behind it dissipate by not trying to do anything to it. And I think because we grew up in England where, I see you grew up in England as well, Stephen? No, I'm Scottish. Okay, so, well, but close. Okay, so in the UK, I assume the culture is, is uh, my grandfather was from Glasgow and, and moved to London. And so, you know, I assume we have similar experiences of the culture and the pressures that we were under. And, and so I just, I think there are certain ways in which we were conditioned that didn't help us to deal with our emotions. And so... For me, I was a slightly melancholy, depressed teenager at boarding school and feeling a bit of a misfit. And nobody taught me how to deal with those emotions. No, nobody really knew what was going on. I got incredibly lucky that I had an unbelievably kind housemaster at Eton who tolerated me doing things like saying, I mean, I just decided in my A-level year, I, I just stopped going to history class because I decided my history teacher was boring. And so I just decided I was going to teach myself. And my housemaster was head of the history department and didn't stop me doing that. And, and what did you get in the A-level? I think I got a B, which was... Well, pretty uh, good doing it uh, yourself. Um, but yeah, I mean, but nobody was telling me how to operate. And so I, so I sort of feel like, you know, how to deal with my emotions. And so I, I feel like these Tibetan Buddhists figured out certain things by sitting quietly with their emotions in caves over the last thousand years and watching the mind while meditating. 
that they saw what was going on in there. And so they have this kind of practical technology through meditation and through, with, with Sotnir Rinpoche, these practices like handshake practice, where they figured out very wise ways of dealing with emotion. And so for, for me, part of my exploration that I, I hope some of our listeners will get interested in is going on that inner journey, trying to figure out how to make your inner landscape a better and happier and, and calmer place. Because what you really want is to have equanimity within the maelstrom of life. Because as we can see with the last couple of years, the craziness is going to continue. So the question is, can we be calm and balanced within the maelstrom. And so one of the things that Sokni Rinpoche says that I love is he talks about when you're meditating, sitting within the fluidity without judging. That's a really beautiful idea. Everything is flowing around you, your thoughts, your craziness, your emotions. The, you know, I had construction in my house this morning and for the last several months. And so I've got builders there. My wife comes up and is like, how's it going? I love the new bathroom. And and then there's drilling and there's hammering and I'm sitting there trying to meditate. So you're sitting in the fluidity without judging. You're just like, okay, yep, this is my reality right now. And think about the applications for investing where you're in the heart of the maelstrom. Think about the reality of all that we're dealing with in the news every day. And so if you can be the calm in the eye of the storm, that's a very beautiful and very powerful thing. And you can, you're then in a position to help other people because you're not so overwhelmed by your own emotion or your own fears or worries. And so that's, that's a lot of what I'm interested in. And it, it sounds like I'm, I'm going off the deep end and going a long way from investing. But actually, what's really curious is how many of my well-known investor friends are meditating, ed exercising, praying, you know, figuring out how to get this inner landscape under control so they can operate you know, their own vehicle properly. Brilliant. Thank you so much. People, where can they find you? So it's, we know the book is Richer, Wiser, Happier. We know the podcast is Richer, Wiser, Happier. I don't think you need any more listeners. I uh -huh. suspect you're doing quite well. Um, and you're on Twitter at WilliamGreen72, is that? Yeah, and people are welcome to connect with me there or connect with me on LinkedIn. And I, I, I hope people will read the book and will listen to the podcast because it's the podcast has these very, very rich conversations with people, not only about investing, but about other aspects of life. And it's kind of a treasure trove to have these extraordinary people thinking about so many different aspects of life. And I'm not sort of a, a shill for this stuff. I'm not trying to kind of, you know, build my brand and build my bank balance stuff. I, I'm like trying to create something. I mean, yeah. I'm probably happy for that to happen as well. But I'm I'm trying to create something that's actually kind of valuable to people. And, and what I'm doing is, you know, I'm trying to learn myself because I'm struggling. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm on the same path of trying to figure out these things, trying to figure out how to be calm, how to deal with adversity, how to improve, how to improve my habits, how to invest better, how to be a better parent, how to be a better son, all of these things. And so... It's a way of thinking aloud and exploring these questions aloud. And so I, I, I hope you will find it helpful. Well, listen, thank you so much for giving up your time. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Uh, really it's been a great it. pleasure. Thank you for having me and for your, your infinite patience in listening to me drone on. <laughs> it hadn't occurred to me before my conversation with William, but one of the things which is common to good journalists and good investors is curiosity. I think it's essential to be curious to be successful in either endeavor. And I think many journalists would make good investors and probably an even higher proportion of good investors would make good journalists. 
I really enjoyed hearing about William's life philosophy and some of his learnings from all those interviews with great investors. One thing stands out, William Green is genuinely fascinated in people and in what makes a successful investor and a successful life. If you haven't read his book already, I thoroughly recommend it. Some of you liked the idea of this two-part conversation, others hated it, and it was 50-50. I probably won't do this again, but I'm still keen to hear your thoughts. Please email me at info at Thank you.